everyone, welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey everybody, I'm Alicia. Welcome to the season finale of season 14. Is it that time again it already? Is that time again. We got a season finale up at bat for you today. Stacy, your center field in your story with an actual baseball divorce. Yeah, a bit of one. This is former Los Angeles Dodgers owners uh, Jamie and Frank McCourt. This one has twists and turns and unexpectedness. So much money. Who do you have for us this week? <laughs> I got the guy who was ready to play. Put me in, coach. Mm-hmm. Holy cats. We've been having a lot of fun on Patreon exploring the utter and complete trash candy spider web that is Robert Evans. We talked about him on Trashy Divorces and his seven ex-wives, I think. Mm-hmm. However, the vignettes of his life Would, are incredible. They are incredible. So over the last few weeks, we've done multiple episodes. We have more coming. I took a vignette from our last few weeks and stitched them together for a little bit of summertime fun from the Wonder Kid himself. <laughs> hey, before we kick off today's season finale, I've got a magic mirror here with so many names of our newest supporters who've joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Stacy, kick us off. Sure, huge thanks, praise and gratitude to Deborah S, Tamara Renee G, Joe P, Jennifer C, and Book Burglar. Two new super supporters as well, Lauren C and Lauren P. Wowza, y'all are amazing. So as we do at the end of every season, we will be off next week. What are the dates for our being back? July 6th for Trashy Breakups, July 10th for Trashy Divorces. Awesome. So be great until then. Thank you for listening to the stories that are forthcoming. All right now, Stacy. Put me in. I'm ready to play. What do we need to do? Go, go, go. All right, Stacy at the bat, hitting uh, trashy divorces out of the park today. Are you ready for some misconduct? Always. <laughs> I have an expensive one for you this week, Alicia and listeners. This flew under my radar back at the end of the 2000s when things went wildly south, but for Californians and especially for Los Angeles Dodgers baseball fans, the epic split of then-Dodgers owners Jamie and Frank McCourt damaged far more than their personal finances and standing in the community. The Dodgers organization itself ended up in bankruptcy after years of the McCourts playing fast and loose with the team's debt. Even better, from our perspective anyway, the end of the divorce wasn't really the end of the divorce since Frank would go on to sell the team months later for the eye-watering figure of $2.15 billion, (gasps) a sum that quickly drew a $770 million lawsuit from Jamie who alleged that Frank had improperly undervalued the team in his financial statements during their divorce. This really has it all. There's celebrity striving. There's luxury real estate. Oh, so much of it. There are private jets. There's infidelity alleged. And at the bottom of everything, there is just way, way, way too much money. Let's meet these two and then get into how it all went so, so wrong. I got to get that popcorn vendor over here. You do. Where is our cart? This is a business couple that seemed like it was always going to go somewhere big. Frank McCourt was born in Boston on August 14th, 1953. Leo, man. 
and grew up in a big Irish Catholic family that had operated, I, I think, a pretty significant construction company there for like four generations. I mean, it, so, okay. yeah, pillars of the community, maybe. His grandfather had been an owner of the Boston Braves. Oh, wow. Frank attended Georgetown, graduating in 1975 with a degree in economics. And that is where, while both were freshmen, he met Jamie Luskin. Her family owned a business in Baltimore that sold appliances, maybe a chain of them, I'm not clear. And there was some interfaith conflict when Jamie, whose family is Jewish, introduced her Catholic boyfriend. It was intense enough that her parents did not attend their wedding in 1979, but no matter. By then, Jamie had graduated Georgetown with a degree in French, then gone on to get a law degree at the University of Maryland, as well as an MBA from MIT. So oh, Jamie's fine. Jamie's fine. <laughs> Frank worked for his family's company only briefly. By 1977, he had founded his own commercial real estate development company, the McCourt Company, what else? Which until 2004 was apparently best known for building parking lots in greater uh, Boston. Okay. Jamie would become the vice president and general counsel at the McCourt Company. The pair had four children who are all now probably sliding toward middle age. And they were legitimately getting rich with their development and parking lot business. Uh, the Boston Globe once referred to Frank as, quote, our parking lot attendant. Oh, my. I don't think he liked that. I think the best piece about this whole sorry mess was written by Vanessa Gregoriadis in August 2011 for Vanity Fair. I know your favorite magazine. And while she has a delightfully dim view of both McCourt's the piece is filled with fascinating language about the nature of their relationship over the several decades that they were together. Gregoriadis writes, The McCourts were a formidable business team, unafraid to use lawsuits to pursue their interests. Elsewhere in the piece, she wrote, Compromises were rarely made, with one party feeling slighted. Like it was a good partnership, right? Elsewhere, quoting Jamie's divorce attorney, David Bowie's, uh, many, many years later, he's talking about the, at the beginning of the divorce process, he says, quote, they respected each other and thought the other was smart and imaginative. Frankly, I don't think that either had given up hope on the marriage. So this is not the usual language that you see no. about couples, formidable, unafraid, knowing each other as smart and imaginative. Like, this sounds like a good this doesn't sound trashy at all. Yeah. Right. This is why, why are you bringing this to the table? Yeah. Stacey? This just kept jumping out at me that like, these are people who are really well attuned to each other for a very long time. And then what happens early on? They got a taste for real estate that makes mere mortals weep with a $16 million mansion in Brookline. Uh, they sued their contractors on that one. There was a $19.5 million estate on 100 acres on Cape Cod. Wow. There was a $6 million ski condo in Vail. The Brookline house ended up under a lien, a tax lien, I think, some kind of lien, after which the couple opted to put all real estate holdings into Jamie's name alone, which is a way to protect them from business creditors who might come knocking. This habit will become significant when the pair break up a few decades down the line. Oh my. It was around two decades into the marriage that Frank decided it was time to follow in his grandfather's footsteps and break into the big leagues, by which I mean he went shopping for a baseball team. The Red Sox hit the market in 2001, and obviously that would be a dream purchase for a Boston McCourt. 
they were outbid. They tried to use a parcel of land that they owned, a big parking lot, as part of the deal, offering to build a new Fenway Park on it, but cash offers taste better than asphalt offers, so it fell through. Or landed flat, so to speak. (laughs) But by then, the idea of owning a baseball team had sunk deeply into both of their brains, so their eyes turned west, and they began making overtures to the Anaheim Angels, but those went nowhere. When the Dodgers hit the market in 2003, after being badly managed by News Corp, Fox Corporation, Rupert Murdoch for five or six years, Fox had bought it to block an apparent effort by Disney to create its own sports network. Like, it was a defensive purchase, but Rupert is not a baseball fan, and so it sort of got ignored. How much does a baseball team cost? Oh, I'm glad you ask. Uh, The McCourts were there to court Rupert Murdoch into relinquishing the team to them, bidding $421 million. Wow. Which is $9 million less than Fox slash News Corp slash Rupert were asking. But remember, these are canny, unafraid business people, and they somehow managed to finance this whole mess with, according to Frank's lawyer, quote, not a penny, unquote, (sighs) of their own money. Oh, my. Fox loaned them close to $200 million, and presumably the other $200-plus million was also borrowed somehow. We've all heard of being underwater, but I am not sure the ocean has depths for how underwater this deal was. Yeah, $412 million underwater is, yeah. Wow. I mean, it, and it's weird because Fox basically, like, funded the whole thing. I mean, it's really, it's a very, it was a very strange deal. Back to the uh, Gregoriatus piece in Vanity Fair. This is how she describes Frank and Jamie's arrival in Los Angeles, but from the vantage point of years later when the marriage has imploded and the debts have come due. Quote, you would almost pity the man if he weren't such a scoundrel or a schlemiel, depending on your perspective. Always with a fine suit on, his thin lips moving constantly as they work their way into some new sort of trouble. He's been owner of the team for seven years since he blew into town with Jamie, his tense, skinny chihuahua of a wife who favors a look that could be described as real housewives business casual. Tight navy skirts, highlighted blonde hair, and enormous handbags. Los Angeles was initially welcoming of them, as it is of anyone with money, but when it became clear that they were using one of the city's biggest franchises, part of what put Los Angeles on the map as a world-class destination to pay their personal expenses, among other shenanigans, the ire in the normally placid city exploded. The McCourt breakup and financial problems with the team are covered by newspapers here as sensationally as the decay of the Wilpin dynasty, the owners of the Mets, who are now selling a minority ownership to a hedge fund manager, is in New York. The Dodgers and the Mets are each thought to be well over $400 million in debt. That is a descriptive paragraph. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, California, of course, is a community property state, and these were people who were planning to make some big-ticket purchases to get themselves into the good graces of Los Angeles's power elite and Hollywood stars, and the whole nine. Their lawyers drafted a postnuptial agreement for when they actually made the move from Boston to L.A. that clarified that the homes that they bought were Jamie's sole property, while the Dodgers and presumably whatever business entities they controlled were Frank's separate property. Like, okay, not part of the marital estate. 
What would become clear in a few years was that Jamie did not understand the agreement to say that. In her mind, she was the 50% co-owner of the Dodgers, and the houses in her name thing was just an asset protection ploy, nothing more. And what a ploy it was! They snapped up a 21.3,011,637 square foot house in Holmby Hills. Oh, that's high dollar. That's next to the Bird Streets. That's big. Well, it's across the street from the Playboy Mansion. Yeah. And then they dropped $6.5 million on the 8,300 square foot place next door. $4.7 million bought them a tract of land in Cabo San Lucas. And $7.7 million gave them a place in an elite ski and golf community in Montana. You gotta unwind somehow, am I right? But what's the point of L.A. if you don't have a beach house? Oh, that's what I was about to say. You're missing Malibu. No Santa worries. Monica. Courtney Cox and David Arquette were selling their Malibu place for the low, low price of $27.3 million. And golly, the $19 million bungalow next door was available too. It's a bargain at any price. They bought both. Oh my. At Holmby Hills, they dropped $12.4 million to remove the tennis courts and to expand the existing outside pool into an Olympic-sized indoor pool complex with a pool house, a sauna, and massage rooms. Jamie likes to get her laps in. But what's a bunch of mansions without staff? There was 800000 for a driver and a security team. There was their hair... A- dollars? $800,000. Wow. There was their hairstylist, who was pulling in 10000 a month to keep them looking pretty. Nice work if you can get it. They upgraded their private jet situation as well, spending more than 250 hours a year on golf streams at the cost of $12,500 an hour. My brain can't handle it's too much. There were also genuinely dodgy payments coming out of the Dodgers organization itself. One of the team's charities, which had a budget of $1.6 million a year, paid a favored employee $400,000 of that budget to oversee it. This triggered an investigation by the California Attorney General, which prompted the Dodgers to pay the money back to the charity. The Dodgers also paid one of the McCourt sons, an employee at Goldman Sachs, Uh $400,000 for something. Just a little $400,000 bonus just for fun? Hmm. I Maybe he sure. Googled something for his dad. I, I don't know. One of their kids, then a student at Stanford, <laughs> picked up a little sideline with the team, although it's not quite clear what his duties were in that capacity, with a $200,000 salary. Oh. The financial disclosures made during the divorce painted a devastating picture of the couple's profligacy, with apparently $108 million coming out of the Dodgers organization and into the McCourt's pockets in a five-year period. And worse... $22 million a year, just pilfering. And worse, they reported that the team was losing money... For tax I wonder purposes. why. <laughs> so they seem to have paid zero on that $108 million windfall, although Frank says the taxes were merely deferred, and anyway, he insists that $108 million figure is totally made up. So that was the background stuff going on that the baseball-loving denizens of Los Angeles didn't see, or at least didn't recognize rich people spending extravagantly as anything particularly noteworthy in their community because Los Angeles. To the public, the balefully mismanaged team under Rupert Murdoch's ownership was suddenly winning again. In the first three years of McCourt's ownership, the team won the NL West division, and who doesn't 
love a winning team. I mean, one fun development during the McCourt years was that the Anaheim Angels, Anaheim's like 30 miles from Los Angeles, changed its name in 2005 to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, drawing a formal complaint from Frank to Bud Selig, the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Oh, I bet, yeah. Selig was underwhelmed by the controversy and took no action, so Frank printed up t-shirts for, quote, the Los Angeles Dodgers of Los Angeles. Oh, God. (laughs) Which is apparently still kind of a rallying cry. (laughs) Los Angeles Dodgers of Los Angeles. That's funny. It was heady times. The former Boston parking lot attendants were now genuine Los Angeles celebrities in their own right, with fancy friends, an unofficial bank account in the newly impressive baseball team they owned, lavish digs all over the place. So mid-decade, it was certainly time to think about next steps. For Jamie, that meant plotting a course to enter the world of politics. Luckily, she had hired a marketing guy from the Baltimore Orioles organization who was more than happy to help her plot this out. He sent her a memo with a three-point plan. It read, one, to fix the world, two, fix America, three, be president. Oh, <laughs> those are three steps. Three, three One short, could take. Three short steps mm-hmm. to the White House. Another booster inside the organization, quoted by Gregoriadis, wrote, After you've planted all the appropriate seeds, I think you can leverage your eventual star power to become mayor of Los Angeles. As long as a Magic Johnson-like celebrity doesn't enter the race, you'll win the mayoral seat. Next step would be governor. And if you get that far, well, let's say that a female governor from California will be instantly added to anyone's shortlist of presidential candidates. Lots to talk about, but much more to get done, Madam President. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did I mention that by this point, the Dodgers were $459 million in debt? (laughs) And that then the Great Recession hit? Oh, no. So all that real estate they had purchased was also suddenly underwater to one degree or another, which sent Jamie to their lawyer in 2008. This is when she discovered that she was not the co-owner of the Dodgers, as she, I mean, says that she had believed but was merely Frank's wife and the owner of a bunch of houses that had massively devalued kind of overnight. Frank wasn't exactly in a hurry to put things right with her, either. Oh. He had always intended to be the sole owner of the team, it seems, and when she confronted him and demanded that he draw up new documents to fix this, he remained noncommittal. By then there was another issue, too. Frank had become convinced, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, that Jamie was stepping out with her much younger driver. Events spiraled from there, and on October 21st, 2009, Frank fired Jamie. He sent her a letter. That's so cold! From her $2 million a year position as CEO of the Dodgers. That is not going to go over well. Have you met Jamie, dude? She filed for divorce days later, demanding half of the team's value, which she pegged at $800 million, and half of the rest of their fortune, which she pegged at $1.2 billion. Oh my God. During the divorce, she was reduced to living on a mere $630,000 a month or so to attend her many properties, pay her staff, fly in her private jets, hang out in her many country clubs. And she also had access to the big pool complex at the Holmby Hills house from six in the morning to two in the afternoon. $630,000 a month? Yes. A month. Yeah. Just to, just to get by. Just scraping by, Alicia. <laughs> Unreal. 
Frank, meanwhile, was thinking he could get her to go away for maybe $40 million and, you know, all the houses. <laughs> oh, that's not going to work. When suddenly, plot twist, it turns out that their lawyer had made a drafting error with that post-nup. So the documents they signed actually made Frank the sole owner of all of their property exclusive of the Dodgers rather than he is the sole owner of, in like, anyway, it was just one wrong word that completely changed the meaning of the agreement. The lawyer caught the error after they had signed it. And rather than calling his clients back to, you know, fill out corrected versions. Oh, no, 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 dude. He just kind of swapped them out somehow. I don't know if he just like scanned their signatures onto the corrected versions or what. But once Jamie's legal team realized that this had happened, um, it allowed the judge to set that post up aside, which, hey, Jamie, back, 50% owner. Yeah, community property. Yeah, Dodgers, back in play. Except that Frank was absolutely unwilling to budge on the matter. He upped his cash offer to $120 million to Jamie. But as this was all playing out, the LA Times and other outlets were shedding brighter and brighter lights on the financial mismanagement of the team. And within the negotiations, Frank was increasingly pointing to the debt load that the Dodgers were carrying and pleading something like poverty. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, hitting a point of exhaustion, Jamie told him that she would take his hundred-plus million dollar cash offer but that it had to be paid promptly or else she would ask the court to force him to sell the team to make good on the settlement agreement. Frank had another idea. Oh, really? Oh, yes. His old buddy, Rupert Murdoch, who had picked Frank and Jamie as his preferred buyers back in 2004, needed the Dodgers back on his TV roster to once again counter moves into the sports broadcasting space by rival networks. News Corp has essentially unlimited funds, which is great, I guess. But Rupert knew that Frank was in a weak bargaining position. So Frank sold the broadcast rights to the Dodgers for 20 years to like Fox Sports West or whatever for something like two to three billion dollars. Oh, but, my God. But this <sighs> agreement hinged on his receipt of a three hundred and eighty five million dollar upfront payment, which he was then going to use to pay off Jamie, even though that is Dodgers money. It's anyway. Uh, Also, the deal hinged on something else too. Major League Baseball, the corporation, had to approve it. Bud Selig was not exactly a Frank McCourt fan by this point. Frank had limited options and a lot of needs, most pressingly in that moment, making payroll for the Dodgers organization. So he called up his buddy Rupert and asked if News Corp could make a $30 million personal loan to float things for him through mid-April of 2010. Selig went through the roof. Team owners didn't negotiate this sort of thing on their own, and they definitely didn't have these side obligations with one of the league's major broadcasting partners. No. Completely out of line. And since the post-nup had been voided, There was also the risk that Jamie would not sign on to Frank's deal with News Corp anyway, meaning that the whole thing was epically flimsy, and Selig announced that he would be taking over all financial matters relating to the Dodgers. Oh, I bet. Yeah. New plot twist. Oh, God. Jamie was desperate to keep Selig from seizing the Dodgers and cutting both McCourts out entirely. After all, in her mind, she was a 50% owner. And if the broadcast deal went through, she had already asked their judge to rule expeditiously on who owned how much of the team. But again, 
Fatigue is a great motivator, and by June, Jamie had had enough. On June 17th, she agreed to an undisclosed settlement contingent on Major League Baseball approving the broadcast contract with Fox Sports West and Prime Ticket. A trial was scheduled for August, where if Frank was found to be the owner of the team, he would make a large cash payment to Jamie. If Jamie was found to be the co-owner of the team, the Dodgers would be sold post-haste, dizzying legalese here. Ooh, extra plot twist. Oh, God, I'm tired. No more plot twists. <laughs> There's so many. Just three days later, on June 20th, Major League Baseball said no on the broadcast deal. Oh. So, on June 27th, Frank, always having the good ideas, put the Dodgers into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Oh, my God. <sighs> A move intended to cut Bud Selig off at the knees Technically, the commissioner of baseball can take over a team that is in bankruptcy, but Frank was counting on, you know, a judge's ego to force the league to negotiate the broadcast rights or, more to the point, to have the bankruptcy court order an auction for the Dodgers' broadcast These rights. are some risky games you're playing without stakes. Yeah, outcomes guaranteed, so, man. So the league, Fox, and Jamie all opposed the bankruptcy move. You think? But Frank is fighting a two-front war here, and with one enemy tied down in bankruptcy court, he turned his attention back to his soon-to-be ex-wife. <laughs> Don't do it, Frank. Oh, he does. Don't do it. On October 17th, the pair announced that they had arrived at a settlement agreement neutralizing his second foe. This is how the LA Times's Bill Shaken described the situation that day. Quote, Frank and Jamie McCourt have reached a divorce settlement under which she would get about $130 million and relinquish any claim to a share of the Dodgers. Multiple people familiar with the agreement told the Times. The settlement would remove Jamie McCourt as an obstacle to Frank McCourt's plan to retain ownership of the team by selling the Dodgers' television rights in U.S. bankruptcy court. The agreement also would appear to set up a winner-take-all court showdown for the Dodgers between Frank McCourt and Commissioner Bud Selig. The people familiar with the agreement spoke on condition of anonymity because the settlement has not been finalized. However, such a settlement would conclude what is believed to be the costliest divorce in California history. The McCourts incurred $20.6 million in legal bills related to the divorce through July. Oh my God. According to Los Angeles Superior Court filings by each of the parties to settle the outstanding dispute over whether the Dodgers were the sole property of Frank McCourt or community property could have added at least $14 million to those bills based on estimates in a filing on behalf of Jamie. This story just hurts. Uh-huh. So Shaken continues, Selig has asked the bankruptcy court to order the Dodgers sold. For Frank McCourt to keep the team, he probably needs U.S. Bankruptcy Court Judge Kevin Gross to deny Selig's request and to grant an auction of the Dodgers' television rights over the objection of Selig and Fox Sports. However, in the absence of the pending settlement, Frank McCourt could not have kept the team without defeating Selig in bankruptcy court, then defeating his ex-wife in divorce court on the issue of whether the Dodgers were community property. It is uncertain whether the bankruptcy court would allow McCourt to use money from a television deal to satisfy a divorce settlement, Selig would not, or whether the net proceeds of a sale of the team would even exceed $130 million. Like, no one knew at this point what this heavily indebted team was even worth. So 
I want to reiterate the date there, October 17, 2011, and then pivot to an LA Times blog piece dated November 1st, 2011, two weeks later. Its title, quote, Frank McCourt agrees to sell Dodgers. <laughs> the sale didn't close until the following May, but the $2.15 billion price tag was a record by far. I'm no, sorry, price two, tag of what? $2.15 billion. $2.15 billion. $2.15 billion. <gasps> no team had ever even sold for a billion, much less twice that much. Frank wired Jamie $131 million from his estimated billion dollars in profits from the sale. But, 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 Bill Shaken, again in the LA Times, quote, McCourt retains half ownership of the Dodger Stadium parking lots. Oh my God. <laughs> Although no development can take place on the site unless he and the new owners agree, uh. according to people familiar the Dodgers' new owners will collect parking fees, and they have not said how that revenue might be split with McCourt or what development they might have envisioned for the parking lots. The Dodgers' bankruptcy filing came on the heels of a bruising two-year divorce battle that revealed how the McCourts used team revenue to further a lifestyle that included side-by-side -side estates in Holmby Hills and Malibu, private jet travel around the world, even house calls from hairdressers and makeup artists. Commissioner Bud Selig seized control of the Dodgers' financial operations last April. Major League Baseball later accused McCourt of, quote, looting, unquote, $189 million from team funds. What a devastating, calculating play that all was. Jamie knew what had happened, and at the start of 2013, filed a lawsuit against her ex-husband. Oh, yeah, I bet. Asking for $770 million. Yeah, the other part of the billion that you didn't share with me Yep. when you pulled your tricky, tricky plot twist move, dude. <laughs> yep. This is how Dane Perry of CBS Sports summed it all up. America's sweethearts, Frank and Jamie McCord, <laughs> are headed back to court. At issue is Frank's unthinkable windfall that resulted from his sale of the Dodgers to the group publicly fronted by Irvin Magic Johnson. Thanks in part to the prospect of being able to negotiate a stratospheric new local television contract, Johnson's consortium paid McCourt a reported $2.15 billion. That meant that McCourt, despite leading the August franchise into bankruptcy, the word leading there is in quotation marks, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, realized an unthinkable profit on his original heavily debt-financed investment of $430 million. Oh, and he'll still be receiving millions per year in Dodger Stadium parking revenues. Life? It remains unfair. Perry continues, Anyhow, when Frankie Parking Lots divorced from Jamie, his wife of 30 or so years, and co-conspirator of 8 or so years, they settled for what Jamie claims in her court filings was an unfair amount in light of the eventual sale price. Here, courtesy of the Courthouse News Service, are Jamie's justifications for pursuing another $770 million from her ex. Jamie McCourt claims she settled for $131 million because Frank lied about the value of mm -hmm. his assets, above all, the value of the Dodgers. She says she deserves at least $900 million. Quote, the parties had little when they married, Jamie McCourt says in her complaint. Quote, they both worked, and with the aid of substantial loans from Jamie's father, they succeeded in accumulating assets. 
After 30 years, all the assets they had accumulated were quasi-community property or community property. Jamie claims that Frank gave her wildly varying estimates of the value of the Dodgers from $2 billion in 2004 to less than $300 million in 2009. And Perry concludes, I suspect that there actually is honor among thieves somewhere out there, but this isn't evidence of it. <laughs> the reasonable takeaway is this, a pox on both their mansions. Wow. Frankie parking lots. Frankie parking lots. All right, so Jamie, who certainly seems to have some moral justification to ask a court to declare her ex-husband a no-good manipulating layabout, did not prevail in this suit. An appeals court upheld her loss, noting that, quote, Jamie simply chose the security of a guaranteed $131 million payment, plus more than $50 million in real and personal property, over the uncertainty and risk presented by the valuation and sale of the Dodgers' assets. I mean, that makes sense legally. It does. You it you chose, does. you mm-hmm. went for the safe route, and you can't come back and complain about it right. later. Even though clearly... We was, want to. No, I mean, but like clearly, like, Frank manipulated this whole situation. Oh, yeah. He's a... Yeah. So what's weird to me, although also I guess not, is that Selig had all this evidence of what he, like, explicitly called looting of an MLB property, but... Did Frank or Jamie ever face any criminal sanction for stealing from their business? I doubt it. Of course not. It's a billionaire's club. And if we start taking action against billionaires for every little transgression, where (laughs) would it end, I ask you? (laughs) Seriously, let's keep the focus on important things like guys selling loose cigarettes on the streets of New York or maybe or maybe not passing a counterfeit 20 at a convenience store in Minneapolis or... Some college kid who gets popped for selling weed to his classmates. Come on, people. Focus on what's important. (laughs) Frank has remarried and gone on to buy a French soccer, you know, football team. A 50% stake in the global... Oh, God, because the last team went so well, dude. (laughs) What's wrong with you? A 50% stake in the global champions tour, which is a horse show jumping competition. And in 2019, he donated the Los Angeles Marathon, which he had purchased in 2008, to the McCourt Foundation, which one of his cousins in Boston runs. I'm sure that's... Tax the rich. Jamie bought herself a 22-acre vineyard in Napa with plans to live there part-time and take over the winemaking operations. Uh, Of course. I am not sure if that happened or not, but ooh, newest plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) She was a bigwig for Trump 2016 and served on his transition finance committee and ended up being his pick for U.S. ambassador to France and Monaco from 2017 to 2021. Oh, my God. I think these days she's just kind of your standard, like, extremely rich backer of various philanthropies and startups and such. She did not become president. Yet. <laughs> I, I, I don't... Trash cans... Billions, 2.15 billion of them. As many to fit in Frankie's parking lots. Yeah, 14 billion just because this is the end of season 14. I pick a number, the unlimited. I can't believe I was not aware of this. This is. That had more dollars than any other divorce I think we have ever I, covered. I think so. I mean, to to have the most expensive divorce in California history is really saying a lot. That is a state with a lot of money sloshing around. Well done, Stacy. Thank you. Not so well done, 
Frank and Jamie, but great for our purposes. Frankie parking lots. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, friends, thank you, as always, for joining us for these stories. Uh, that was incredible. I'm a, I'm a, little, I'm a little baffled. Uh, we're going to come back with a different kind of California dreaming sort of thing yep. after we hear a word from our sponsors. Take a little break, and we will see you on the flip. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to <laughs> podcasts on. Yeah, podcast your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? Or a thriller you could only read during the day? The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. And we're back. So, Alicia, this week you've got kind of a follow-up of a recent story, right? A little bit of a follow-up. We covered the trashy divorces of Robert Evans not that long ago. Sure. Hollywood producer. Legend. Mm -hmm. Divorces. <laughs> legend in his own time. Mm -hmm. The boy wonder. Since then, we have been following up on the trashy spider web that is Robert Evans over on Wednesdays on Patreon. We've covered three so far, and we're only about to get him to becoming a producer. <laughs> this is my juice. So mm -hmm. over the last three, I took one thread of the last part of the vignettes as kind of a end-of-the-season fun little bonus uh, for everyone because these stories are going to connect to so many of the players. Every story connects to a player that is famous within our Trashy Divorces universe. I took three of the best ones for this little vignette today to take us out of season 14. Perfect. This first one is a little life lesson from Mike Todd. <laughs> Remember Mike Todd, very famously married to Elizabeth Taylor. This is long before that. This is 1946. Robert Evans is 16 years old and he and his best friend, Dickie Van Patten, <laughs> Dick that, Van Patten, that, eight Dick, is enough, yeah. actor, used to like to box at the Gotham Health Club. And Robert Evans is there with Dickie Van Patten one day and hears 
If your feet are as fast as your hands, you could be one hell of a scrapper. Maybe make the pros. There ain't many white kids around. Maybe I'll even manage you. Call you Pretty Boy Floyd. Evans responds to this voice. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm an actor, not a fighter. <laughs> Guy says back, good for you, kid. Your hands, using them right, is as important in acting as it is in fighting. That is if you want to make the pros, so uh, keep them up. Those words were spoken by Mike Todd. And Robert Evans loved showing off for Mike Todd at the club. Evans says he's in total awe of Mike Todd. He considers him to be, quote, an adventurer, gambler, entrepreneur, showman, and coxman, unquote. So Robert Evans at 16 and Mike Todd, legend, developed this, like, mentoring type of friendship. The two would often take off from the Gotham Health Club together and eat a quick sandwich at Rumpelmeyer's. They always sit at the counter, never the table. Again, this is long before Mike Todd had married Elizabeth Taylor or produced Around the World in 80 Days. So one afternoon, they're at Rumpelmeyer's, they're eating lunch, and Mike Todd says, You got too much moxie, kid, to be an actor. It's okay for a dame, but not for a guy. Unless you make it big, real big, it's a lousy life. After a while, you start losing your cojones. There's nothing more boring than hanging with some half-assed actor talking about himself. Mike Todd stands up and says, I gotta go. I'm late for a gin game. Robert Evans asks if he can play, and Mike Todd laughs at him and says that this game is out of his league. <laughs> he said, these guys will take your pants off and not even blink. What will you pay them with? Your dick? <laughs> Come up and watch me if you wanna. Just don't be a wise ass. The game is at 40 Central Park South. It's a six-handed game, and five of the other guys are already waiting when Mike Todd shows up, and this is a group of guys who plays once a week. And at the start of every single session, the prior week's tally would be settled. All in cash, never a check. At this game, though, this particular day, there's a little bit of a problem. Because the guy responsible for keeping the tally sheet from the week before had lost that tally sheet. Mm. What to do? All six of the guys agree that there were two winners and four losers. However, no one agrees about who owed how much to whom. But they're all friends, and nobody's trying to cheat anybody. They just had different recollections. So everyone agrees that Mike Todd had been one of the losers, and tired of listening to the whole debate about the totals, Mike chimes in with, Fuck this, fellas. I've only got four hours, and I came to play gin. You say I owe 2100 right? They nod. Well, I brought 1400 in cash. That's what I remember losing. There's a $700 spread. What the fuck? Let's split it. So taking a check out of his pocket, he writes out a check for $350, but asks them not to cash it because he will bring the cash next week. Then he asked everyone else to do the same so the game could get started. Everyone reluctantly agrees. But in this game, the stakes are high. Robert Evans will write that any of them could easily lose ten dollars to $15,000 in an afternoon. This is in the mid-40s? Mid-40s. Do you want to know what that would be today? I do. $250,000. Un Quarter of a million dollars in a card game. Unbelievable. Robert Evans, naturally, like 16-year-old kid, says he is in complete awe as he's watching this thing go down. 
So when the four hours are over, none of them want to stop playing. So Mike Todd whispers to Robert Evans, go in the other room. <laughs> this is just incredible. Call David Niven at the Pierre. Tell him I'm at an important meeting. Ask him to pick up Susan Hayward. She's at the St. Regis. I'll meet them both at La Pavilion at nine o'clock. Nine o'clock rolls around and there's this other player, Nick Conti, who's actually a really big Hollywood star at the time. He goes by Richard Conti and he suggests they all play one more set. And Robert Evans doesn't think Mike Todd would keep playing because he had him call David Niven and to pick up Susan Hayward, and he has said he, you're, he's going to meet you at 9 o'clock. But instead of saying he has to go, Mike Todd says, start dealing. So in the next hour, while David Niven and Susan Hayward are waiting for him, Mike Todd hits it big. After 10 o'clock, the game finally ended, and just like the week before, there were four losers and two winners. The two winners were Mike Todd and Nick Conti. Mike had won nearly $5,000, and Nick had won over seven. As he was leaving, Mike Todd says, I'll keep the tally sheet this time, fellas. <laughs> See you next week. Same time, same station. Let's go, kid. We're late. And as if getting to watch the scene was not enough for the 16-year-old Robert Evans, Mike Todd had some advice to give him after the game. After lighting his cigar, Mike Todd said, That cocksucker Conti's a fucking pro. He never loses. If he acted half as well as he played, he'd have copped two Oscars by now. Wow. Walk me to the restaurant, kid. It's only three blocks away. Walking down the street, Mike laughed and said, It's a good thing I didn't lose. That check I gave to Conti would have bounced. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but before Robert Evans could ask about that, Mike Todd looked at him and said, This is a life lesson for Mike Todd. That's what gambling's all about, kid. It ain't no fun unless you play for more than you can afford to lose. Being a good player ain't enough. For a buck, you can buy them by a dozen. It's all handicapping. You gotta know who you're playing with. Good players come and go. Good handicappers seem to always pick up aces. Hmm. They both realize that they have arrived at the restaurant, and underneath the restaurant canopy, Mike Todd puts his arm around Bob Evans and says, Don't forget... If it ain't written down, it ain't collectible. Everyone remembers things different. Wow. He then faked a left jab, and Evan's hands went up to block it, and Todd said, that's it, kid. Keep them dukes up. It's cold out there. Got it? <laughs> Robert Evans will write about Mike Todd, quote, as the years passed, his myth only grew. Marrying some funny-looking dame, Elizabeth Taylor, at the height of her career and accomplishing the near impossible, raising his own financing to independently produce Around the World in 80 Days, which won the Academy Award for Best Film of the Year. At the pinnacle of his success, he was killed in a plane crash over Palm Springs. He died the way he lived, dangerously. I'm always delighted with the Mike Todd story. Yeah, that was a version of masculinity it, just interesting. I mean, it really reminds me of like the way that movies were written back then too. Just the, the mm -hmm. dialogue, like if it ain't written down, <laughs> it ain't collectible. It's cold out there, son. <laughs> <laughs> All right. From Mike Todd to a little bit of a done and done connection over there. We have been dipping into the Kennedys. This one is about 
W. Tramps and Encounters with JFK. We move Robert Evans along a little bit. He's 18 or 19 by this point. Grizzled, probably. (laughs) This is the summer of 1949, and most everyone who lives in New York City spends the hot summer at the beach or out of the city. But Robert Evans can't do that because he's an actor on the radio. He's the co-star on one of CBS's top radio shows called Let's Pretend. Robert Evans is also having a secretive affair with the 1949 debutante of the year. Her name is Joanne Connolly. Joanne's parents do not know about this hot and heavy affair, and if they did, they would certainly not approve. Yeah. Joanne Connolly will tell her friends, who Robert Evans refers to as her pigtailed piglets, that she, Joanne, was seeing Evans out of rebellion. But he said she was lying and she was actually loving the dirt of going to Harlem with him and being the only white chick in the clubs they were going to and seeing shows she shouldn't be seeing and going to the track instead of finishing school. Far better way to spend a summer. Oh yeah, way more fun. He will write, The more she whispered her rebellious acts to her pigtailed piglets, the more they too wanted to rebel. She got off on it. Me? I got off on getting her off. If they'd known about it, her parents, icons of New York society, would have gotten off too with a gun. So each summer, Joanne's parents would spend July at their villa, naturally in the south of France. Hmm. So they're far, far away. And this is when Robert would be allowed into their spacious townhome on East 73rd Street. One particular day, Joanne is hosting a small luncheon for some friends. Hmm. Robert is in attendance. He's feeling a little awkward, a little shunned by Joanne's society friends. Mm -hmm. He's not having a good time. He will humorously call all of her society friends debutramps instead of debutantes, making clear how he felt about them. Party's not going great. Soon the guest of honor arrives, though, at the luncheon. He writes that the new arrival was the top honcho on every ladies' heat list. The man that all the debut tramps are lusting after is Congressman Jack Kennedy mm. from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Out of the 25 guests invited, nearly 20 were the debut tramps dying to give Kennedy their phone numbers. The few other guests invited were just there as shills to make it a little bit less embarrassing for the girls that were there. But after lunch and dessert, the congressman announces his apologies for what was going to be his quick and early exit, saying that he had promised His Excellency Bishop Donahue that he would spend some time with him. Robert Evans (laughs) says to John Kennedy, when you see His Excellency, would you give him my regards? And a very surprised Kennedy replies, you know his eminence. And Robert Evans says, very well. So after some back and forth in which Kennedy clearly does not believe Robert Evans, Kennedy decides to call his bluff. And he says, join me then. We'll pay him a visit together. I'm sure he'll take great pleasure in seeing you again. So teenager and radio actor Robert (laughs) Evans leaves the Upper East Side townhome along with Congressman Jack Kennedy. What Kennedy doesn't expect is that Robert Evans actually knows the bishop. Choosing not to give details about his experience with the bishop, but Robert Evans will say, What transpired started out as a religious experience 
and ended up a cause celeb within my family. Stopping my father from having His Excellency arrested and put behind bars post-haste was no easy task. It is unclear what His Eminence has done. Gotcha. But there is a history with His Eminence. And it ain't good. And it ain't good. So with this news, Kennedy tells Robert that it's probably best if he waited for him in the car, as opposed to going in to see the bishop. And Robert Evans will agree. Wow, you really wonder in light of, wow. When the meeting is finished, John F. Kennedy and Robert Evans go have hot dogs together and talk. Robert Evans asks him, Congressman, did you give His Excellency my regards? And Kennedy replies, you like trouble, don't you? Evans says, yeah, I do. Kennedy says, so do I. (laughs) Over the course of the next hour that they spend together, Robert Evans says that John Kennedy passes on some knowledge that changes the course of his life. Kennedy tells Evans, word power is far stronger than muscle power. Stick with it. It could change your life. The two, remarkably enough, do not keep in touch after they part ways sharing hot dogs. But more than a decade later in 1962, Robert Evans is invited by Alan J. Lerner to a party that is given for the first couple. Evans writes, The soiree was hosted by Flo Smith, an intimate, and I mean intimate, friend of the president's. When the glamorous couple enters the room, everyone stood to greet them, And Robert Evans wonders if Kennedy would remember him or even recognize him. And when it's Robert's turn to shake the president's hand, Kennedy looks him in the eye and asks him, did you take my advice? Amazing. Evans replies, I did, Mr. President. Smiling, President Kennedy said, you must have. I followed your career closely. Congratulations. And before he stunned Robert Evans, has time to utter a word in response, President Kennedy is already shaking the next person's hand. That is amazing. I guess uh, a successful politician would have that kind of memory for like rando teenagers they had a hot dog with once. (laughs) I'm not kidding. These are only two of the vignettes. Mm. I think we probably covered 20 of these so far. These are two of many, many. This summer is going to be so much fun with Robert Evans on Patreon. I got one more, though. Okay. Concerning two of my favorite trashy divorces Mm -hmm. profiles, Ava Gardner Mm -hmm. and Lana Turner. Mm -hmm. This is a little, this is a little trashy and Mm. shady. Robert Evans, Robert Evans will land the role of Pedro Romero in The Sun Also Rises, which gets to a whole variety of spider webs, but I'm going to focus just on this one because it is here that Robert Evans and Ava Gardner begin an affair. It lasts through the end of filming and for about six months afterwards. A few months after the end of the filming, they will celebrate Ava's 36th birthday together. Evans will describe her as being a different Ava. She was feeling down and depressed and while they're out getting drunk, she'll look at Robert and say, you know, kid, my career is over. I'm finished. No one wants me in flicks anymore got no boyfriend. I'm just what you call over the hill. He will continue saying the thing was in the late 1950s when she said that she was sadly right. Leading ladies over 35 were considered over the hill. Now the cool thing about the memoir that Robert Evans writes, it's written and published in 1994. So he'll write at this time about this. 
wow, things have changed. It's now 35 years later and almost every leading lady is 35 years and north. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, pal. And hooray for the ladies. So this is just a little side note because it really is true. The Oscar nominees for Best Actress in 1994 when Bob Evans released his book were Angela Bassett, 36, Emma Thompson, 36, Deborah Winger, 39, Holly Hunter, 36, and Stockard Channing at 50. As we continue in the world looking at making some type of progress for the ladies, Oscar nominees for Best Actress in 2022, just this past year, are even older. Jessica Chastain, 45, Nicole Kidman, 54, Olivia Coleman, 48, Penelope Cruz, 48. The only one under 35 was our Trashy Breakups profile of last week, Kristen Stewart, mm. coming in at 32. Okay. No, that's progress. So when the shooting of The Sun Also Rises ends, Robert's previous film, Man of a Thousand Faces, is still in post-production, and Evans is asked to come back to Los Angeles to do some voice dubbing on the film. Part of the gig. So Evans is at Universal Studios when a well-known Hollywood reporter walked by to go to Stage 7 to interview Lana Turner. I can imagine Bob Evans' ears perking up. I'm sorry, who? Who? Yeah, no. Uh, Robert Evans says Lana Turner was my fantasy ever since I was a kid. So he hears Lana Turner. He's intrigued. The reporter says, yeah, come on over to Stage 7 when you're done with your dubbing, and I'll introduce you to Lana Turner. So Robert Evans flies through dubbing his lines as quick as possible and proceeds directly to stage seven. Lana Turner is in the cockpit of a plane for a movie she's filming called Lady Takes the Flyer. When Lana's scene ends, she'll walk down the ladder and she'll walk right over to Robert Evans and sticks her hand out to shake his and says, my name is Lana Turner. <laughs> Evans says he replied with a, mm, my, 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 my name is, is Robert Evans <laughs> in a shaky and nervous voice. And Lana Turner says, I know. How's Ava? Oh, God. <laughs> Robert Evans right now realizes that Lana Turner thought Ava Gardner was in love with him and that by seducing him, if Lana did, Lana would be sticking it to Ava Gardner. Robert Evans knows that Ava Gardner is not in love with him at all, and their fling is nothing more than that. A mutual, like, friends right. with benefits kind of a thing. Absolutely. But, hey, what what does Lana Turner need to know, really? Well, Evan says what Lana was doing was more commonly known as cat claws. But Robert Evans, understanding exactly what he's dealing with, plays along. Does he tell Lana Turner that Ava Gardner is not serious about him? He's not no. stupid. <laughs> Evans writes, why should I tell her? She had no more interest in me than Ava had, but I ain't going to tell her. <laughs> but I ain't going to be the one to tell her that. What it sure as hell was, was a unique key to a very short-lived romance. So now here I am before my first flick was released. My name is all over the tabloids for dating two of Hollywood's most glamorous legends, both considerably older and both considerably infamous. Did it help my newfound career? You bet your ass it did not. <laughs> a gigolo, possibly. A playboy, for sure. But an actor? No way. 
Robert Evans, you are the king of spiderwebs, my friend. Yeah, what I've learned from your series of vignettes uh, is that Robert Evans is kind of a real-life Forrest Gump. <laughs> just like, yes, that's ex- he yep, is in every just, situation. Mm-hmm. And this coming up week, we're finally getting him to becoming a producer. So we can get into Love Story and The Godfather and all of those connections. We just need to get him not teenaged anymore. Right. And into the scene. But just what an like 16 hanging out with Mike Todd. Hanging 18 out with Kennedy. Bumping into Congressman Kennedy. Having affairs with Lana Turner, Ava Gardner. Like you would not believe it because right. it just sounds so fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But in fact, that is the remarkable life of the boy wonder, Robert mm-hmm. Evans. I cannot wait to continue those over this summer on Patreon. Hope y'all enjoyed that. Trash Cans Unlimited. Wow. Is that it for season 14, Alicia? That's it for season 14. Wow. We are going to be back with a Wednesday episode, July the 6th for you. Trashy Divorces will resume July the 10th, and we have a season 15 (laughs) out of the park idea. We cannot wait to see you back July 10th for that. Yep, so we will be off next week, and we hope that in our absence, you, dear friends, will keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. If you're missing us, patreon.com, done and done, will get you sufficed through the way. Yep. Thank you, all you trash pandas, for making this one hell of a trash candy delicious ride. We love y'all so much. Definitely. We will see you in a bit. See you back in July, friends. Keep it trashy. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all